This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered his country's deterrence forces, which includes nuclear arms, to be placed on high alert. I do think that the threat is greater at the moment. We see an erosion of the stigma of using nuclear weapons. Would Putin really use them? There is no small nuclear weapon. All nuclear weapons have devastating, lasting, generational humanitarian consequences. The abolition of nuclear weapons seems to be much more difficult and problematic than the fact of just saying it's against human rights, it's against humanitarian law. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. And as you may have heard in our introduction there, we're going to talk about something that's maybe not unmentionable, but often isn't talked about at all. To join me, I've got my colleague and regular analyst, Daniel Warner. Now, Danny, I wanted to ask you, are you familiar with the German, Swiss-German term Salonfähig? Nein. Nein. Okay, so what salon fake means is that it's acceptable in your salon, if you like, that a topic for discussion is okay to talk about in your civilized living room at your civilized dining table. As we know, there are some topics we don't talk about, some topics we do. Now, unfortunately, over the last few months, what has become salon fake, acceptable, we think about it, is the prospect of nuclear war or a nuclear strike. Now, that's because of those veiled threats from Vladimir Putin in Moscow as he prosecutes his attack on Ukraine. He's been trying to remind the West that, oh, by the way, don't forget, we've got nuclear weapons. Therefore, I'm ordering the Minister of Defence and the Chief of the General Staff to put the strategic nuclear forces on special alert. Now, Danny, you and I know for decades the world goes by, we don't really think much about, or most of us anyway, we don't really think much about nuclear war. But there have been times in history where it is on everyone's mind. Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. Now, you remember, as a very young guy, the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the US and Russia faced off. Tell us a bit about that. What was it like? Well, I do remember those 13 days. I was a teenager in school, and it was a moment that the two great superpowers confronted each other with the possibility of nuclear war, given the fact that Soviets had put missiles with nuclear capabilities only 75 miles from the border of the United States. And those 13 days, as Robert Kennedy wrote in his memoir, are ingrained in the memory of people who lived through that. So obviously, thankfully, common sense prevailed. We survived the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I remember kind of 20 years later in the 1980s, fear about US cruise missiles coming to Europe, being positioned in Europe. My own mum was a protester at one of the UK sites at Greenham Common. 
If attack is imminent, you will hear the attack sound like this. We have told you how to choose a fallout room in your home. The best place is farthest away from the roof and outside walls. And I also remember the circulation of a really, seemed to me at the time, bizarre UK government pamphlet that was called Protect and Survive. It had these ludicrous pictograms of mushroom clouds rising over UK cities. And we were given instructions to use bags of sand and kitchen doors to build little shelters to protect ourselves. And I remember being absolutely terrified by this. I couldn't sleep at night. I really thought this could be the end of us all. But the 80s went by, the Cold War ended. We even had a few years of hopes and moves towards nuclear disarmament. But now we're back. We're talking about something we haven't talked about, the spectre of nuclear war. The fact it's being mentioned as a possibility by Vladimir Putin has got us all worried. Now, Danny, I've been out and about talking to people, what they feel about this. And one of the first people I talked to is Alicia Sanders-Zacker. She's policy director at the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. Because although we may conveniently forget about nukes for years on end, ICANN, her organisation, doesn't. And it has campaigned consistently for the abolition of nuclear weapons. So the first thing I asked Alicia was, what had been her first reaction when that attack took place, when Russia invaded Ukraine? There was real concern and fear across Europe and around the world. There was this new pertinence of nuclear weapons in kind of global public opinion that we hadn't seen throughout most of, of my lifetime, really, since uh, the, the end of the Cold War. Of course, we were really concerned and, and scared, but I think it was also illustrative of the world order that we live in. This is the reality of nuclear deterrence, that there is a nuclear-armed country that can hold the rest of the world hostage at their, their own will and volition. As long as we allow these nuclear weapons to exist, there is the risk of their use. When that conflict began, it started as the fairly traditional artillery attack, land invasion. And then the nuclear threat was mentioned, at least hinted at. What did you think then? Had you expected it? I think it was, you know, the quiet part said out loud. Uh, again, this is the basis of countries that have nuclear weapons. This is their security strategy, is threatening the mass murder of civilians with nuclear weapons if they don't get their way. And clearly, we can see now how dangerous and unsustainable this kind of a security strategy is for the rest of the world. These nuclear threats particularly, uh, you know, in the way that they were made at times in the beginning of the conflict, were in line with Russian security strategy. It was really scary to hear it so plainly spoken. But at the same time, I think it was the reality of what nuclear weapons are meant for, uh, why countries like Russia seek to cling on to their nuclear weapons. We have to, to remember that these are 
weapons that are ingrained into country's security strategies to be used. And that's why we need to eliminate them, is that is that there's always this threat of their use. Danny, Alicia's got a point there, hasn't she? Because, you know, you and I, ordinary people, we may forget about nuclear weapons for years on end. But the fact is, as long as they are still there, as long as they still exist and governments have them in their arsenal, the risk is always there that they could get used. Well, the risk is always there because the theory is that the more countries that have nuclear weapons, the fewer we use them. It's the theory called the more the better. But in fact, the issue of abolishing them uh, is not something that's on the agenda. What people are trying to do is to say that they can't be used as a deterrent, uh, that the consequences will be horrendous. But the point of deterrence was that if more countries had nuclear weapons, no one would use them. So if the Russians threatened to use nuclear weapons, the response would probably be military, but probably not nuclear weapons. And that's the thing that's been going on since the end of the Second World War, the theory of mass as destruction and the theory... I think that it was called MAD, wasn't it, for mutually assured destruction? Mad. That's exactly correct. So, so the theory of one country using them uh, is something that's not very popular today. That's why the Russian threat is so unusual. Well, I don't know, Danny, when you talk about more countries having nuclear weapons and that might actually make us safer because the risk would be bigger. I just, I don't feel that reassured. I don't know many people who would feel reassured. I've actually been thinking about this in in kind of a, a different way. I've been asking myself, are we talking about nuclear weapons being used as a realistic prospect, as a definite possibility? Are we doing that partly because our collective memory about what nuclear weapons, their effect can be? Because that memory's maybe fading. I mean, obviously, it's a long time since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the people who remember that or who survived it are obviously now not many of them left, many of them dying. So if we kind of in our ignorance, normalized the idea of this kind of war in a way that maybe we shouldn't. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Visited Hiroshima 30th. Situation horrifying. 80% of town raised. All hospitals destroyed or severely damaged. Another person I've been talking to about this is... Dr. Ruth Mitchell, professional doctor, obviously a member of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. She's actually worked with survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, let's take a listen to what she has to say, because she's got a salutary reminder of what just one nuclear weapon can actually do. The impact extends from the immediate effects on the human body the blast, the high-velocity projectile trauma, the burns, including bodies just melting into the ground, to the more delayed radiation sickness with loss of skin, loss of hair, loss of hair growth, to the delayed effects in terms of 
cancers, both solid cancers and uh, hematological or blood malignancies, blood cancers, and then all the issues around fertility and all of the issues that endure to the next generation and the generation after that. So we find that children are being born with birth defects, that there's higher rates of miscarriage in these communities. And then we find that even to the third generation, you know, even sometimes the fourth generation, there's an uptick in cancer rates and things like that. And that's just the physical body stuff. That's before we even start to grapple with the mental health consequences of surviving something as dire as someone trying to annihilate you and all of your community. What do you think when you hear that, Danny? Well, I understand the consequences, but I also understand that in 1996, the International Court of Justice gave a ruling, an advisory opinion, asked for by the World Health Organization and the General Assembly, and the court finished with this comment. The court cannot conclude definitively whether the threat or use of nuclear weapons would be lawful or unlawful in an extreme circumstance of self-defense in which the very survival of a state would be at stake. In other words, when the Russians talk about an existential threat, they're actually using the language of survival. Whether that's true or not, the point is that they feel that they're being threatened To some extent, you could say that the United States felt threatened by Japan in the Second World War. So the abolition of nuclear weapons seems to be much more difficult and problematic than the fact of just saying it's against human rights, it's against humanitarian law, and that's where we have to draw the line. But the abolition seems to be not very pragmatic. Well, we've got time just now to give you a few statistics in case you were wondering how many nukes are there on the planet. Well, there are apparently around 13,000 nuclear weapons. The United States and Russia between them have over 90%. Then, of course, there's France, Britain, China, Israel, we think, India, Pakistan, North Korea, probably almost there. Other countries, maybe, we don't know about it. We do know the big nuclear powers are actively modernizing their stockpiles at the moment. Now, the legal issue, the court and so on that you brought up there, Danny, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit because there are other legal opinions. And I'm going to take the side of the abolitionists because we do actually now have, since the beginning of 2021, an international treaty banning nuclear weapons. Now, surprise, surprise, the nuclear powers haven't actually ratified it, but a lot of smaller countries have. And naturally enough, they feel threatened by a possible nuclear fight between the big guys, which might take out the small guys as well. Now, Costa Rica, for example, was instrumental in pushing that treaty through. And so too was the International Committee of the Red Cross. The Japanese Red Cross hospitals in Hiroshima and Nagasaki are still treating thousands of survivors and their descendants afflicted with birth defects to this day. This must never happen again. All states must join the nuclear ban treaty. 
the Guardian of the Geneva Conventions, the laws of war, the ICRC genuinely does not think any use of a nuclear weapon could be legal within the Geneva Conventions because it could never be proportionate. It could never discriminate and try to ensure that civilian life was spared. Danny, what's your view on that? Do you think a treaty like that is just really not much more than words on paper? Well, I would make a slight amendment, Imogen. In 1957, uh, Henry Kissinger wrote, was the rapporteur for a report of the Council on Foreign Relations. And he talked about the use of tactical nuclear weapons. In other words, instead of talking about mutual destruction, the Russians are talking about a small nuclear weapon, eventually tactical. And what they're missing is, as has been pointed out earlier in the broadcast, the effects of that would be devastating. And all reviews of Kissinger's report and later best-selling book said that he didn't understand that the damage would be enormous. You could not limit it to a small area. And it seems to me that's an argument that we've forgotten. And when the Russians talk about a, a small use of a nuclear weapon, we should remember what the consequences would be for many, many people around. Well, that's absolutely right. We're going to look at modern tactical nuclear weapons and what they are and what they can do in a moment. But I think it's really important that you made that point because we're not talking in 2022 about mad, mutually assured destruction. Now, that, of course, is what we were told kept the armed peace during the Cold War. What we're talking about now is a battlefield nuclear weapon. That's what Russia has hinted at. Now, Ruth, interestingly, thinks that hasn't actually lessened the threat, but increased it. Let's hear what she's got to say. I do think that the threat is greater at the moment because we see an erosion of the stigma of using nuclear weapons. The idea of actually possibly really truly using a nuclear weapon, the narrative, the language being used is has been changing. And all sorts of devices have been used to try and make it sound like it might have a place in a modern, current, ongoing violent conflict. And I find that deeply distressing, very alarming, and it's why we have to talk about this. So Ruth seems to think that the very fact that we're even talking about nuclear war almost makes it happening more likely. Do you think that's right, Danny? I mean, the fact that the issue was being raised by the Russians certainly is something very different from what we saw during the Cold War. Uh, and the fact that it's no longer taboo does represent a change in, in attitude, although it doesn't justify the threat uh, or the use of. Uh, but it does seem to me that taboo is not as strong as it was before. Everyone is talking about tactical nuclear weapons. What are they and could Russia actually use them on Ukraine? Estimates suggest that Russia has about 2,000 tactical nukes. Tactical nukes vary in size and power. The smallest can be just one kiloton or less, while the larger ones can be as big as 100 kilotons. They have so something else I've been hearing, Danny, and especially here in Switzerland, actually, where lots of people have still got their 
nuclear bunkers. People have saying, been saying to me, oh, well, it's not going to be like the 1960s with ICBMs, ballistic missiles going back and forth, first one, then a retaliatory strike and back and back, huge nuclear conflict. It'll be just one battlefield nuclear weapon, something small, something limited, won't reach us, we'll be okay, it'll stay in Ukraine. Well, some people think that's a rather rose-tinted idea and that the reality would be pretty different. And Alicia Sanders-Sacker of the campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, when I talked to her, she was really keen to challenge that perception of uh, one little tactical strike. We don't need to worry too much. I think this is one of the most dangerous things that we've heard in kind of the broader media and public discourse is this this discussion of a a quote-unquote tactical, low-yield, small nuclear weapons use. We know there is no small nuclear weapon. All nuclear weapons have devastating, lasting, generational humanitarian consequences. The bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they had these yields of roughly 16 and 20 kilotons, uh, kind of equivalent of TNT. Those are some of the smallest nuclear weapons in modern arsenals. And those have devastated cities and and have survivors generations later who still have health consequences, who are still dealing with the devastating impact of these weapons. There are no small nuclear weapons. There are no nuclear weapons that won't have lasting generational consequences. If one tactical nuclear strike occurred, would that be the end of it? Would that, like Hiroshima and Nagasaki, end of the war? I think what's really dangerous about modern nuclear strategy is that it's based on the ability to have a second strike capacity. Uh, that's how US Russian forces are, are built, is so that if there is an attack of any level, these countries are built, their strategies are designed so that they can retaliate, so that they can escalate. So I think it would be really an aberration of modern military nuclear strategy to think that just one nuclear weapon would end there, that there wouldn't be a follow-on consequence that would likely be retaliation with another nuclear weapon. So as devastating as just one, the use of just one nuclear weapon would be, uh, in reality, there wouldn't just be one nuclear weapon. Uh, It would be an escalating chain leading to potentially all-out global nuclear war and, uh, you know, potentially the the elimination of of life on Earth as we know it. So, Alicia's suggesting there that there's no chance that just one limited tactical strike would happen, that it would almost certainly escalate. It's not a very hopeful prospect, is it? No, I think there are two issues here, Imogen. The first is if one country uses a nuclear weapon, we should not assume that another country will retaliate. And it is optimistic that the head of the United States Defense 
ministry saw his Russian counterpart, the head of the CIA saw his Russian counterpart. So I think certain things have been made clear about that. But the second point is dangerous, that some country or some person may get nuclear weapons and doesn't understand the devastation or is so sacrificial that they say, we don't care. That's something that's even more dangerous than the first scenario. The other kind of tenuous hope I've heard here and there is, oh, well, we don't, you know, we don't, obviously, we don't really know what Russia's nuclear command and control chain is, but that there might be a well-meaning officer in that chain who would say, nope, I'm not doing that, not pressing that button. Do you think that's likely? Yeah, well, that's why I think the discussion between the two defense ministries and the heads of the CIA are trying to guarantee that that kind of scenario will not take place. But nowhere has the United States said or any other NATO country that if the Russians do use a tactical nuclear weapon, that the West will use a nuclear weapon in retaliation. That hasn't been the case. It wasn't the case in the Cuban Missile Crisis either. Vladimir Putin made a threat not heard since the height of the Cold War. Russia's response will be immediate. Then, days later, he raised the alert level of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. But would Russia's president really use them? Britain's defence secretary thinks Putin is bluffing. And now with this case with Russia, the West's response has been to say about Putin, well, we don't believe him, he's bluffing. Do you think that's maybe a slightly dangerous tactic towards somebody with the mental outlook that we fear Vladimir Putin might have? Yeah, I'm not sure that the Russians are serious on that issue. But again, coming back to the ruling of the International Court of Justice, if they believe that the war and Ukraine could be winning is an existential threat, perhaps they have nothing to lose beside using a nuclear weapon. But for the moment, it appears to me to be a bluff. But Danny, do you really hope that things could be contained if a nuclear weapon was used? No, I don't think it could be contained. Uh, I, I think it would have an enormous response by the West. Uh, there would be a battle between the West and Russia, but not quite the same as the Cuban Missile Crisis, which really a global confrontation. This would be a more limited one. Well, that was actually Alicia's point, wasn't it? That once that particular taboo is broken, things could really escalate very quickly. You'd have a lot of stressed, very panicked people and I think, Danny, you perhaps view it a bit differently from me, but I, I just don't have a lot of faith that if nuclear weapons were ever launched, there wouldn't be a response in kind. And I think one of the things that makes me worry is that all the war games ever gamed on that kind of scenario, none of them ended well. A lot of them ended an all-out war. So yeah, I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but I, I kind of am. Anyway, just to come back to Alicia and Ruth. I wanted to tell our listeners, in case they didn't know, but both their organizations, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons and the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, have at different times been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their work to eliminate these weapons. Weapons that I think a lot of us wish we didn't have, or actually wish had never been invented. And on that, I want us to listen here to Ruth, because I think she's got a really interesting point. She doesn't think, and she's a doctor, remember, that humans, any human, 
could ever really be responsible enough, capable enough to handle a weapon like this. Take a listen. The idea that these are things we must have but never use has always been a lie, but the current circumstances are really making that more obvious. I don't think anyone should be reassured by the idea that these tactical nukes could be used in just sort of a nice, gentle, delicate, domesticated conflict. That's not a real scenario. It's incredibly clear that not only are there a number of people who have access to and control over nuclear weapons who are who are clearly the wrong person to have nuclear weapons, but in fact, there are no right hands for these weapons. There are no humans in existence with adequate poise and judgment that they could always be trusted to never make a bad idea, never make a mistake, never be an error. And I think that the current discourse and the threats of use of nuclear weapons that we are hearing highlight that, you know, this is a class of weapons which has to be abolished. Either we get rid of nuclear weapons or they will get rid of us. That's quite chilling, isn't it? Danny Ruth said either we get rid of them, nuclear weapons, or they get rid of us. Do you share that view? I just don't see realistically that there would be a possibility of countries giving up all of their nuclear weapons. The same problem comes up with proliferation. Uh, It's very difficult to imagine that countries could give up all of their weapons. There is the possibility they could reduce them. There may be more types of cooperation, but I think impossible to give them all up. Well, how about, I mean, obviously there are different routes to getting to this goal. There's total abolition. We had the campaign for nuclear disarmament in the UK, for example. There's multilateral disarmament where countries agree I'll give up this if you give up that. Now, that process, of course, inched along, but it's been stalled for a long time now. But we've also got something else now. We mentioned it earlier. That's the International Treaty Banning Nuclear Weapons. It's a UN treaty. And Ruth and Alicia view that actually very optimistically. So what they said to me was they view it a bit like the International Convention to Ban landmines, that although some countries, big countries, haven't ratified it, there's such a stigma around landmines now. They're barely used, not really manufactured very much. And they hope that that kind of stigma could surround nukes. So countries gradually start to get rid of them. The technology, the science to build them would exist, but nobody would ever do it and nobody would ever use them. Do you think that's likely? I don't see uh, the use of weapons, uh, frankly, because I think that they would develop as a kind of deterrence. It's like people who have insurance. Uh, you buy it, but you don't think you're ever going to use it. In this particular situation, I think the Russians or other countries would understand that the consequences, if they used it, would be enormous uh, and self-destructive. But again, you never know if someone's going to use it, uh, what the consequences would be. So optimistically, the ban on rep- weapons should be there. 
uh, the people won twice the Nobel Peace Prize, but pragmatically it seems to me something impossible to see in the future. But I do also think that people won't use it uh, unless there's someone who gets a hold of it, a terrorist organization, but I can't see any country responsibly using nuclear weapons. Many thanks, Danny, for those final words. And thanks, too, to Alicia Sanders-Sacker of the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons and Ruth Mitchell of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. I hope in this edition of Inside Geneva we've managed to enlighten you a little bit at least on the state of play around nuclear weapons in the world right now. Who's got what? How many? What a tactical nuclear strike might look like? What the real threat is? And I'm afraid my conclusion is the answer to that is we've talked about the unthinkable. We hope, and that's the operative word here, that it really is unthinkable. But as long as these weapons exist, we just don't know. That's it from Inside Geneva for this week. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes. You can hear analysis of the war in Ukraine, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.